What up, though? Welcome to the Fat Boy MMA Podcast, where we talk about everything combat sports, but mainly MMA. If you want to hear a couple regular MMA fans talk about MMA history, notable fighters, up-and-coming fighters, and everything in between, then this is the podcast for you. Now, I should warn you, we're not professionals, but we are big fans of combat sports. Now, if that sits good with you, grab a beverage, sit back, relax, and let's go. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Fat Boy MMA Podcast. I am your host, DC. And of course, I got my co-host here with me, Locke. Hey, what's going on, everyone? So, in today's episode, I saw some very interesting things that uh, I reached out to Locke about. There seemed to be, for some reason, a lot of talk going on right now about you know just a lot of articles about trainers and kind of what they go through uh helping a lot of elite fighters both you know boxing mma helping a lot of elite fighters kind of get ready and you know uh, something that Locke had actually i think you brought up maybe an episode or so ago um in talking about um uh uh winkle john uh, you know, how he kind of lost one of his eyes. That was actually a training accident. You know, I thought it was actually in one of his, uh, uh, you know, in one of his matches. But no, it was actually a training. You know, he was training somebody and basically a guy's toenail kind of clipped his eye. So I wanted to go down the road of talking about two different things. Uh, but I want to start with just talking about um, do you feel like a lot of these trainers are kind of appreciated for what they really do and how much they sacrifice for us to be able to watch these great fights and these great fighters, you know, but they don't get to the level they're at without a lot of these trainers, especially the pad holders that are really in there taking a lot of punishment. So like, what is your opinion on that? Well, I think this is also something that's good for a lot of these trainers because a lot of these guys are people that in a couple of decades ago, you know, the the generations before them in their same sports, in Muay Thai, in wrestling, in, you know, martial arts, anything that's not traditional boxing, basically, these were all guys that would have been running middling gyms locally you know, in the 70s and 80s to scrape up a living, you know, as a Muay Thai fighter or a Muay Thai instructor or something. So I get that they put a lot in, but this is a, a legit opportunity for a lot of those guys that weren't there before because prior to the rise of MMA, there wasn't a ton of money in being a great, you know, martial arts trainer, so to speak. So they definitely put a lot into it, but I think the current landscape of MMA is as big an opportunity for the trainers out there as it is for some of the fighters. Yeah, no, good point. I think a lot of the trainers, though, a lot of them don't, you know, you've heard a lot of the stories how a lot of these trainers are working, you know, regular jobs, sometimes a second job, you know, with not being able to really pay for everything to be a full-time trainer. Um, I do know you have a lot of programs out there, and I think ATT kind of started this wave, at least in America, where, uh, if I'm not mistaken, all of their trainers are on salary. 
so they don't have to worry about that. And, you know, they have a, a system where, you know, they have the full-time trainers, they're on salary, and those guys are there ready to train all of their fighters for, you know, whenever it's needed. Um, and I know that um, with the Black Zillions, uh, Glenn Robinson was trying to build something very similar. Uh, it seems like what he was trying to build was like a mix between what ATT does and a mix between what some of the big uh, BJJ or wrestling kind of farms do where they have dormitories and everything else where guys can come in even if you don't have any money, really just train, train, train. And then there's other things supplementing the income coming in uh, so that now you can also pay great trainers and everything like that. Um, one other thing that, you know, as far as that component a lot of the, the gyms that will have something like that, there will be a certain percentage that each fighter would pay into that so that everybody's taken care of. So if you go by percentage, you know, when you're not making a lot of money, it's not a lot of money. But then when you get up there and you become really big and, you know, at a UFC level or something like that, it could become a lot of money that you're paying back to the gym. And I've seen instances where some guys were, you know, there were fallouts at the gym based upon that, but it wasn't an issue when you was using that system to really come up through the ranks. So like, what's your opinion there? Um, anytime you talk about the percentages, I always think of uh, Dolce talking about, uh, is it 3%? Whether you make 3000 or That's 3 right. million, I want 3%. That's it. <laughs> That's it. You'll be all weight. <laughs> no, um, as, as far as the gyms, I know, you know, America top team that Dan Lambert, that's that guy from AEW wrestling. That's uh, all over the wrestling nowadays. Right. And then that, that his thing, like he, he just moved I don't know on. anything about wrestling, but that's funny. If, if he is doing that now, I can believe it. The guy is, I mean, he built a brilliant system. Mm hmm. Yeah, he's real big on AEW wrestling now. He got Paige Van Zant over there, and he brought a bunch of the ATT guys, you know, into which is a good. It's good for them. It's a good revenue stream for extra money and stuff like that. Um, uh, I think you know some of these guys though. Um, a lot of those guys, I think sometimes, like the guy that was trying to put together the Black Zillions thing, sometimes it almost feels like it's like a rich guy with an ego, you know, trying to throw some money at something. Um, you know, I think the problem is like when I said, Hey, it's a big opportunity for a lot of trainers. When I was listening to you, one thing I don't think about is it goes to show that how much the trainers are really like the fighters. So I automatically say, Oh yeah, it's real good for them. And, uh, they're making a ton of money and this is an opportunity they never had before. But I'm also talking about, you know, Trevor Whitman and Farasahabi and that top 1% of trainers. And that leaves right. out a whole lot of these guys that are putting in the work and getting to these guys, um, you know, to that level. Um, so, you know, I think the same reason a lot of people become fighters is why they become trainers. They're not doing it for the money. They're doing it for the love of the game. And it's almost like, uh, you know, the musician sleeping on a couch, like it's almost part of the story, right? It's, it's like part of the, part of the hustle. Yeah, no, that, that definitely makes sense. And yeah, I would agree The the top guys, they definitely make really good money. Um, 
I know a lot of other guys don't, but you know, to your point, it has to be for the love because it's really dangerous. It's like, uh, one of the videos I think I had sent you, um, uh, was, um, uh, shoot, what is his name? Uh, it's my guy too. I can't say Mike, no, Mike Tyson's trainer now was, you know, he was, uh, um, he was the MMA trainer. Um, you know, he was a lot of the early Vanderlei and a lot of those guys trainer early on at, um, I'll think of his name in a minute, but, um, you know, he's been training Mike Tyson ever since Mike Tyson's been making his comeback. And, um, one of the videos I sent to you was like, you know, Tyson, you know, so, whenever Rafael Cordero. Yeah. Rafael Cordero. Yeah. Whenever he holds pass and I see anybody holding pass for Tyson, I am scared for my life. And it's funny because I remember years ago, Freddie Roach talked about Tyson knocking him out once and he was holding pass for Tyson. And basically Tyson was used to him doing a certain combination and he decided to switch it up at some point in the mid middle, right? Which so part of what you do as a pad holder, you should be punching where I, I hit. But they had had this combination so tuned in, he put up a different, you know, a, a different hand or, you know, different uh, side for a different punch. And instead, Tyson threw the one that he thought he was going to go and knocked him out. And so they have a conversation afterwards. And they're basically arguing about whose fault it is. And Tyson was like, well, you always do this after this. He's like, yeah, but I didn't, right? And uh, in that video, uh, Cordero had like a busted lip. And it, you can't even see in the video where Tyson really hit him. But every time he's holding pads, it's so close to Tyson hitting him, particularly with a forearm or elbow or something because of the way that Tyson kind of moves in and throws his hooks and everything. And he always moves way back when he does it. So when I watch a lot of this stuff and I watch these guys now, of course, he's another guy that I'm pretty sure makes a really good living. Right. But when I watch a lot of these guys, to your point, it has to be for the love, because I mean, if you ever hold pass for somebody and and especially anybody that has a good punch, especially body pads, those pads don't do a whole lot. You feel a lot of those punches you know, in your body and they still can break stuff through that padding of you taking, you know, body shots and helping them train. So it has to be for the love, but just like that fighting's for the love, but I still want to see, as you know, guys get paid. I want to see them be able to really take care of their family, doing something that they love, especially because they sacrifice so much of their body, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, a few things on that. So for one, it you bring up Tyson, but that's like the nuclear option. Now, I know there's a lot of guys that are hard hitters or, you know, train violently, but nobody makes being a trainer look worse than Tyson. Like just the aggressiveness, right. the 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 his style in general, everything that he does well is geared towards making it a motherfucker to try and hold pads for him. And yeah, that is by far the scariest example and it, it's violent to watch and yeah his style with the tight hooks and the foot movement everything's very close and it's very powerful and 
he he's a short guy with short arms, so everything's so tight that we're dealing with inches. And when you punch like Mike Tyson, those inches, we're talking about inches between being regular and your life changing kind of damage. So that that yeah. is a scary option. And for sure, that's some next level stuff, because I've been holding the mitts lately a lot for my son, who, you know, he's a big boy, he's six foot, six one, two fifteen, and he hits pretty hard. And, you know, I come away with my, my hands aching the next day and and that kind of thing. So I that's not the hardest hitting heavyweight champion of all time. So that that is crazy. Um I don't know if this is a legitimate option, but it's something I'm kicking around cuz when you're talking about how much these guys put into it to kind of support this store the, the this uh the sport and and you know you look at that with anything in the military yeah you have your infantry but you have all these support roles that make it possible for them to be there um you know with with teams you have a support staff so maybe at some point if they could come around to a fighters union you know maybe that could be something where the i don't know if it's possible for the trainers to work in on that and do something because i know like some unions like if you're the the airplane mechanics union also has the baggage tossers in it, you know, but something where the guys at the top are supporting the guys that are working their way up a little bit could, could kind of make that work a little bit better. And I think it ultimately makes the whole sport run a little better. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think that would be, I think that would be dope. And it's funny, you mentioned in Tyson, I do want to sidebar a little bit and I'm going to go back to trainers, but something that recently just came up in a conversation that came up in our, in our little fight group that came up in our fight group. I don't know if you saw it, but I guess they're actually coming closer to it being a serious option of Mike Tyson fighting Jake Paul. And somehow in the fight group, they think that Jake Paul would win. And I really don't see the path to victory for Jake Paul in that. And this is the only reason why I say that. In watching Tyson, not just training, but even watching that fight, of course, with him and Roy and everything like that, he seemed to really still be almost as fast as he used to be. The foot movement, the head movement, everything like that, where it really would take a masterful guy to hit him. And if you watch Roy's interviews afterwards, he talked about how hard it was really to hit Tyson and how he thought that at Tyson's old age, that head movement, that kind of, peekaboo style would have slowed down but he was like everything he threw it was like Tyson was slipping it and coming in now of course that was an exhibition didn't seem like they really went too hard or whatever but um I believe somebody in the fight group might have even said that uh they think that Paul would knock Tyson out and I really I don't see that Tyson's skills have deteriorated to that point to lose to a Jake Paul. I don't think he would beat, you know, uh, fucking Tyson Fury or anything, right? I'm not saying that he would be to he would beat today's elite heavyweight, 
but I don't think Jake Paul, although I think he's good, I don't think he's elite in any way. So I wanted to get your quick opinion on that. Yeah, I agree with most of what you, everything you said, and I didn't see that in the group, but I think 100% Tyson takes it. And because of the reason you said, I actually think, and it's, we only have a snapshot. We have training footage and we have the Roy Jones Jr. exhibition, but in some ways, I feel like Mike Tyson is boxing better now than Tyson was boxing at the end of his career. Now, I know obviously the physical attributes and stuff aren't the same no more. He's an older man. I'm, I'm not saying he could beat that guy. I'm saying towards the end of his career, he became a real one-punch boxer. And he was just leaning on one power punch and, you know, a big, you know, le- leading left hook, big uppercuts, big hooks, one at a time. And you look at it, and he's now looks like he's back to trying because probably there's no pressure, and he's having fun, and he has his life straightened out a little bit. So he's boxing like young Mike Tyson, and and a lot of people forget how good young Mike Tyson was. I honestly think where I think Muhammad Ali is the go, and I know we can't get in the story. I think Mike Tyson for one fight in his prime is possibly the scariest person of all time, and he's fighting closer to that. Now, if he was still out there fighting one-punch style, Jake Paul would beat the shit out of him. You know, he's got the range, he would pick him apart. But I I think, yes, a high-level guy in that's now at the top of the game would beat him up because they have the better physical attributes. But as good as Jake Paul is, I think he's still kind of out... And it sounds stupid because we're talking about an uh, ex-Olympian and Tyron Woodley, who's a great athlete, but he's been kind of out-athleting him, outsizing him, you know, and uh, he's not outboxing them. Like, you know, he doesn't look great boxing skill set. He's working on that. He is good and he is getting better. But yeah, I don't think he can get his mitts on Tyson enough to stop him from getting in. And we've seen if... If Woodley can wobble you up against the ropes, Tyson will kill you. Right. Yeah. And I, I agree with um I agree with what you said, especially the point. You agree Tyson. with me agreeing with you? <laughs> exactly. Especially with uh Tyson kind of um as you mentioned, I think what he's doing right now is better than the end of his career, but I think at the end of his career, he really wasn't um he really wasn't boxing his traditional style. He didn't have as much of the peekaboo. It was more a uh, come in, dodge, and then throw a punch. It wasn't the, you know, the body body head shot and a lot of things that he was known for early in his career. He didn't quite do a lot of that stuff. He wasn't really working hard to really get in by slipping, you know, slipping punching. So I definitely agree with that. And um, so now to take it back over to the trainer stuff, there is something, actually one more thing on the trainers before I go into the next point I was going to make. You had mentioned Muay Thai uh, trainers. I will say this, the biggest difference over in Thailand, though, is usually there is like a head Thai trainer and he gets his prestige because in Thailand, it's still kind of like old school martial arts, right? There's a big, big honor thing. There's a system. And the fighters always take on the name of the trainer as one of their names, right? So the biggest one probably being Fairtex. They're one of the biggest, you know, gyms, training facilities, whatever you want to call it over in Thailand. So like 
uh, one of my favorite. Um, she just lost fighting for the uh, the one title, uh, Stamp Fairtex, you know, uh, or Yatsin Clyde Fairtex or whatever. They're, they take on that extra name of their gym, which is usually the name of the gym owner slash trainer, right? That's a part of that breed of that legacy. So now when you keep seeing Fairtex, it does give something back to that that individual that's really putting everything into getting you to that next level. So I'll let you reply to that before I go to the next thing I wanted to say. Um, what I I wanted to ask because I wanted to try and get this out before we get there, and it just made me think of it because you brought up Muay Thai, and uh, like those are a breed of their own. Aren't you a Phil Nurse fan? Yep. Yep. I don't see him around much today, but yeah, he, he did a lot of work, especially back in the day with GSP and a lot of those guys, but yep. Big field nurse fan. And I know he was a, a Muay Thai guy, but mainly today, I think he does a lot of like uh condition type stuff. Yeah. Did you know that he was the cut man for the grease gate incident? Uh, I did not, I know he was working with him around that time. So he's actually the guy that put the grease on GSP in the fight versus BJ Penn. Yeah. So that's something I learned as I was doing research to talk about trainers with you today is this little bomb I wanted to throw on you that a guy that I knew you like is involved in the most hateable incident (laughs) of your MMA fandom. So. Listen, you're you know a fan of Darth philosophy. Vader. Just you know, Phil Nurse is Darth Vader of Muay Thai. If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. <laughs> um, but with the with the Muay Thai, you know the traditional martial arts. Um, what's his name? Does that? Um, Mark Delagradi. You know he he's this real. It's it's such a odd because he's got this thick Boston accent. And he's a very Boston guy. But he kind of is very traditional with the Muay Thai practice and the rules and stuff. But I, I think you need something in between because I really like that. I like the Muay Thai style. I love that about, I think, both GSP and Anderson Silva bring that martial arts uh, mentality to it. Mm-hmm. But I think that any fighter where you need that guy in your camp, you need somebody like a general contractor who's the head of that, who's focused on more of the athletics of the whole thing than the traditional martial arts. I think that plays an important role in it. But I think if you get too caught up in the tradition and the pop and the circumstance, it takes away a little bit with what you're trying to do in the MMA sense. Like that's fine if you want to go to Thailand and do traditional, you know, Muay Thai or, you know, the, the same thing, you know, go to Korea and train with, you know, generations old tongue pseudo places or whatever, but that's different from MMA. And I think that's a part of it, but I think that needs to blend with the overall athletics, which is, you know, your, your conditioning, your nutrition, your, your, your lifting, your, that kind of stuff too. 
Yeah, I agree. I only mentioned it in the sense of because we were talking about kind of trainers getting paid and recognition and everything like that. And you mentioned, you know, Muay Thai. And I just wanted to mention that system, especially for people that's not aware of it. Um, as we know, there's a lot of people that are newly into MMA, but they don't really know about Muay Thai or kickboxing or anything like that, especially not the history of it or the way that it's performed in places where it's still in its essence, like MMA. I mean, like, uh, like, uh, Thailand, right. Um, even some people you talk to today that don't know that there's a difference between Muay Thai and kickboxing. They think it's all the same because you're punching and kicking, right? But it's very, very different, very, very different rule set and very, very different strategies, you name it. Um, so that was the biggest reason why I threw that out there. Uh, but the next thing I actually wanted to talk about was another article that I sent over to you that have to do with trainers. And I read through that article and I never realized that neither Roger Mayweather nor Floyd Mayweather Sr. has ever won Trainer of the Year. And before I give my very biased opinion, <laughs> I want to know your opinion. Yeah, I I think, if nothing else, a lot of people... I, I don't want to get too into why I think that would happen. You know, why I think that they're not. But I think when you look at coaches that we're talking about the greatest boxer of all time and coaching the greatest boxer of all time, possibly, maybe not, but in the conversation for sure, you know, at least of our time, right. And possibly of all time. And that has literally changed his style halfway through that run to to not put the masterminds behind that. Because there's one thing we know about uh, Money Mayweather. He's not the brains of that operation. So that was not his goal. <laughs> Look, he's great at a lot of things. But uh, I don't know that that's, you know, his specialty. But I think I think it's, uh, it, it, it's terrible. But I think it's also par for the course. I would like to say that, oh my gosh, I'm shocked. And that's crazy. But, no, I can see that. Yeah, so for my very biased opinion, I think it is a, a, I think it's terrible. I never realized that, but, I mean, to your point, you can't say that it's all Floyd because his style was very different depending on which of the two was training him. If he was trained, if he was being trained by his father, he had one style. If he was trained, being trained by Roger, he had another style. Also, he talked about before how, you know, they asked him about watching film and everything like that. And he says he does not watch film. He's, he's like, I, I let, you know, I let Roger and, and them do all that. I don't watch film. They basically tell me what to do. I go out there and do it. And other than that, now, of course, him staying sharp, him staying in shape, him doing the things that he do, not drinking, smoking, putting garbage in his body, all of that's him. But a lot of that other stuff, for him to be as great as he was and the two guys that trained him to never get trainer of the year is ridiculous to me, especially when you look at the who's who 
of who he beat and even knocked out in many cases during his reign for them never to get that makes no sense whatsoever to me. And then especially if you go to Floyd senior, who not only trained, you know, Floyd jr, but he also trained De La Hoya, right? Uh, I remember when he was training De La Hoya and De La Hoya said he showed him some things that had him feeling like he never felt before. If I'm not mistaken, De La Hoya had like a semi retirement and then came back under Floyd Mayweather and, you know, was re-energized. Um, he trained Chad Dawson, he trained, trained Layla Lee, trained Ricky Hatton, you know, a lot of different people that, and these are just the bigger names. A lot of the, you know, them they've trained other guys kind of coming up and to never have, you know, gotten that title. Uh, whoever is behind trainer of the year and trainer of the year votes should be put under investigation. That makes no sense whatsoever. Yes. This is my biased opinion. <laughs> no, I'm with you. Cause if nothing else, at some point you get one almost as like a, a career achievement, like a lifetime achievement award almost. Right. Come on. Right. I agree. If nothing else, but yeah, you know, but, but let me ask you this. Are are you surprised? I'm not surprised only in that I think a lot of systems are good old boy networks. And if you're not playing ball or you're not a play, part of the team, so to speak, you just don't get recognized. The reason why I'm surprised is because I never realized it and I never heard anybody talk about it, Right. Like, if somebody would have asked me that question, I would have said, of course, both of them have won before. Like, that's a no-brainer. So the surprise was not the fact that they were shunned. It was that I didn't realize it, and nobody has talked about it at all. And, you know, it, it should be something that had been talked about well before now and before Roger's, you know, Roger's death. All right. Well, I will say this though, and and I get I get what you're saying, but I think that you know playing by your own rules that leads to you getting shunned is also what built the money team as we know it because Floyd his whole life has been like you know what nobody's gonna be, I gotta look out for myself and I gotta build my own shit and he has built an empire because. He built a pirate ship. He's like, I'm just going to build my own thing that nobody can fuck with then. Yeah, I can agree with that. Um, this would be the thing, though. That would be like Floyd never winning any Fighter of the Year or Ring Magazine type titles, right? You say what you want about Floyd, but you still have to look at the accolades or the numbers, you know? And I use the Ring, for example, because... Um, you know, for, you know, the ring magazine title or belt, in my opinion, should be regarded as one of the highest titles or belts because they're not any type of sanctioning body. You don't have to pay to be a part of it or any garbage like that. And they really try to follow the, the closest path to who the linear champ would be, Right. And so when you get that ring magazine title, to me, it really means something. 
you know, even maybe so more than, you know, WBC, WBA, IBF, or any of those. Um, so if Floyd hadn't gotten recognized in any of those facets, to me, that's damn near equivalent to his father nor his uncle ever being recognized. And Floyd still played by his own rules, right? But you had a lot of guys that did. And um, uh, 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 Roy Jones is a great example of a guy that played by his own rules. As a matter of fact, if you look at what a lot of Floyd ended up doing came out of Roy Jones's playbook. Roy Jones was one of the first boxers back in the day that said, I'm, I'm bringing everything in house and it's under my promotion and this, that, and the other. And, you know, he got shunned a lot for it. Right. But he still got his accolades as a boxer when he did great things in the ring, if that makes sense. Right. I agree with you. I'm just saying sometimes that chip on your shoulder you know, to help you, uh, you know, work on something. Like I said, he built, he built his own thing. He promoted himself. If, if he didn't ever get the ring fighter of the year, he would just start his own fighter of the year and give it to himself. You know, he's, he's that's the A side. He'll tell you. Yeah. That's, yeah, of course. You know, cause once he beat De La Hoya and De La Hoya was the A side, he became the A side. <laughs> nah, I totally agree, but to so, kinda, remember a time when Floyd Mayweather wasn't the A-side? That was crazy. Crazy time. <laughs> you know, when he wasn't Money Mayweather, you know. <laughs> but um, just to sum it all up, and, and, you know, maybe we expand on this trainer thing at some point and do kind of a trainer spotlight. I really do think it's one of those things that should be highlighted high more um, for a lot of different reasons to – you know, put a spotlight on some of the guys that really help your favorite fighter become great. But then also on the flip side of that, uh, you know, somebody may be listening to our show and, you know, they're up and coming. They want to get into the sport. They may want to know who some of the best trainers are. Uh, you know, the gyms kind of get high lit, not as much as they did before in the past, in particular because with the UFC kind of, banning all of you know all the stuff that we were used to right where you come in with the banner you have you know your gym on the banner you have all of your your uh sponsors on the banner and everything like that which i absolutely loved um i really wish they would bring it back but that's never going to happen right but um you know so the gyms kind of got some accolades but as far as the trainers unless you you know you know that particular trainer there's there's really nothing there. And um, I think they deserve, you know, no, you don't deserve the exact same thing as the fighter, but especially when you show that you can train and build multiple fighters, I think you deserve a hefty sum and recognition, no different than if you were Phil Jackson in the NBA. You know, so that's my opinion. And anything you want to close with before we wrap it up? Yeah, uh, just two things. I, I wanted because uh, a couple trainers that we we didn't mention. So I know when we were talking about uh, talk about trainers, I guess I just kind of come up with a list of my favorite trainers and stuff. I wanted to talk about them. Um, Let's do it. But 
so when we were talking about holding mitts for um Tyson and how tough that would be, like the runner up, you gotta be Eric Siksik and Ganu's coach, who he said he's almost knocked himself out with punches that he caught with the mitt and then pushed the mitt into himself and almost knocked him out. And, uh, and he gets down with Nganu on top of him in, uh, in the mountain stuff too. And lets him, uh, hit him down there. And that's, if Mike Tyson is, is the, the top one on that, like, Holding the mitts for Nganu's got to be the the second one. Yeah, no, I agree. And, um, you know, one of the articles kind of talked about him and him talking about, like you said, you know, in particular Nganu down in the garden and throwing elbows and everything like that. And, and the thing is, you want you want the fighter to be able to display whatever is as close to the fight as possible, right? So you have to allow for certain things and you have to allow for it to be mixed up in a certain way. But yeah, Engano knocks people's heads off like Mortal Kombat. I could not imagine. First of all, if if I was holding mitts for him, he probably would break my entire shoulder. Forget about the hand. It would probably like you know, twist my shoulder all the way back like a Ken Dow, right? And just break it. His his punching is ridiculous. Um, his power is ridiculous. I think he has natural punching pow- power, but then you combine that with his size and leverage based on his arm length and everything like that, it is something sick. And I would not want a whole pass for him for any amount of money. If they're like, hey, you got a chance, you can meet, you can meet in Ghana where you get the whole pass and hey, we'll even pay you. I would say, you know what? I really got something to do that day. I would love to meet him, but I'm going to take a rain check, <laughs> right? I'm not doing it. No, nah. no. Well, because at least with Tyson, you have the benefit that he's short. Like he's a small heavyweight at least. You know, it's still a vicious attack, but at least he's a smaller size giant. <laughs> you know, and Ganu's um he's a big dude. Like that's that's intimidating. But plus with Tyson it's only punches. When in Gano right. you gotta worry about kicks, elbows. That's a lot to take. Right. That's punishment. Like people don't want to get paid a million dollars to get in there and deal with that. And you're you're doing it on a daily basis. But in ring coaching, I think like Trevor Whitman was like the first guy to really take it to the next level. And I like the way that not only just being honest with his fighters, I really like the way he communicates with his fighters. Um, as far as being real, you know, he's realistic, but he's encouraging. They have a game plan. You know, he can focus them all. If you could focus up Gaethje, you could focus up anybody. That's like taking a literal wild, like, you know, a wild animal, like a wolverine or a pit bull or something and sitting it down and having a conversation with it. And he's able to do that. And we've seen in some of these decisions recently where that coaching, you know, can make it go, you know, cause issues. 
And uh, yeah. it's important. The, the training in the gym is important to learn the technique, but the actual in-game coaching, you know, it, during the fight is a big, big deal. Yeah, I like Trevor Whitman a lot. To me, Trevor Whitman is in one coach what Greg Jackson and Winkle John is for Jackson Wink MMA because he's really kind of in there with the fighters, but then he game plans and almost nobody's as good as Greg Jackson to me with getting fighters attention in between rounds and making sure that they understand his instructions, right? And getting that communication. Trevor Whitman has that. The conversations he has with his fighters in between rounds, you really know that they're listening and they understand. The only blemish on Trevor Whitman's record to me, and it's not the Gaethje fights or anything like that, it's this last Rose fight. I do not understand, and I would have to go back and listen. I don't remember what all was said in the corner or whatever, but I just do not understand for the world of me what anybody on her team was thinking based on how that fight went. I won't well, go Pat too Barry far down Pat Barry was doing most road. of the in-cage coaching, though, wasn't he? Pat Barry is, usually does most of it, but... Trevor Whitman is still the coach, right? Right. So, um, but that said, nobody's perfect. I have to look at your overall record and what you do overall, not one blip of something that happens where maybe you judge wrong. And I think Trevor Whitman is definitely one of the best in the game. And I think he takes guys that, you know, can be really guys and, and women that can be really raw at times, and he's really able to hone them in and, like I said, get something across to them that he obviously does in the training process that really allows them to hear him in between rounds to really understand what he wants them to do for the next round. For sure. Um, the 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 Rose fight was was bad. But, you know, look, Everybody, you know, you lose some games. You have some bad coaching moments. I, I feel like, and I don't remember exactly. I didn't rewatch it. I think like Pat Barry was doing a lot of the the talking, and I get what you're saying. He is is the coach. I I, I don't know. That, that that is a tough one. Um, but what are you gonna do? But yeah, I still think I think he's one, he's one of the he's one of the best at it. The, the worst Mike Tyson's the worst in fight coaches ever was Mike Tyson's uh, buddies from the uh, Buster Douglas fight that forgot to compress and told him just go knock his ass out. Yeah, that was a, you know, that was Tyson's fault. That wasn't the coach's fault. You know, going back to, you know, Tyson had got to a point where he was so good he didn't understand like going into everything that we talked about, right? Like for example, okay. We know that style bender is one of the best kickboxers period in MMA of all time. He probably had, he stayed in kickboxing would have been one of the best 
kickboxers of all time, right? And I don't know if you watched that video. It was in one of the links that I sent you where, you know, he's, you know, going with his trainer. His trainer's showing him how he wants him to do this spin kick. And he's mimicking everything that his trainer does. But then his trainer does the spin to show him, but his trainer's back is still turned. And his trainer kind of stepped back a little bit while his back is turned, not knowing that at the same time, Stylebender is practicing and he's throwing the wheel kick and almost hits his trainer. Luckily, he did not because, you know, it would have been bad, especially because his trainer wouldn't have seen it coming. His back was turned. Um, You look at something like that, right? You look at the skill or the level that we know that a style bender is at. And we look at this other, this guy, this trainer, and you have to say, okay, this guy is really going in there and he's really showing and teaching a guy that you already kind of see as great. Still, he's learning and teaching and style benders learning from this guy. He's not above saying, Hey, I'm style bender. I'm this, I'm UFC channel. What do you have to show me? And the guy is an actual fighter also, right? But he's like a low-level MMA fighter. Tyson got to the point where he didn't believe that it was his trainers or anybody else. He just felt like he had a God's gift. You may have a God's gift, but it still takes for other people to help you hone it for you to really bring everything home, right? And sometimes people get, their ego can get so inflated that they lose sight of that. So it's like when, you know, uh, uh, Joe Rogan always talk about, you know, um, him feeling so appreciated that GSP allowed him to show him that spinning back kick and how humble, for lack of better terms, GSP was. But I think GSP embodies that same ideology as like a style bender or somebody like that it doesn't matter who i am you may have something that you really can show me that i don't have that now when i combine it with the gifts that i have it really can take me to the next level that was what tyson lost sight of and tyson felt like anybody could be in his corner and he would still win because he's motherfucking mike tyson i think that's where that kind of loss was 100 percent. that was on you know it's young guy tons of money it's it's not the first time that's ever happened it was definitely on him but you don't even remember the compress well i guess that is a time before the internet you couldn't google how do i corner my buddy <laughs> that's right how how to corner a fighter YouTube, go. You have to go to the library and look that up and use the Dewey Decimal System and shit. It was, wasn't going to happen. Card catalog. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And um, the funny thing about that is that I do believe, just like MMA has really helped martial arts in an insane amount, the internet and in particular YouTube has helped MMA an insane amount. When you listen to a lot of the older guys talking about like literally they would hear about something or somebody would get knocked out or submitted a certain way. Like, how's that even possible? 
but you can't even get footage or anything of it to see it or practice it. And then all of a sudden, somebody ends up with a VHS tape and it's grainy and everything like that. And finally, you can get your hands on it to see it and practice it. And now there's almost no move or anything that you can't look up, particularly if you know what to look for. And now you and a friend could drill the shit out of that and surprise a fucking fighter, black belt, whatever else, just based upon what you learned from YouTube University. Yeah, I've been, uh, I went to the community college version, but I've been working on my boxing through TikTok in the garage. I've been, I've been doing TikTok boxing. That's good, man. I'm proud of you. You know, I might have to come over there and, uh, you know, see some of those skills. I, um, actually tomorrow we're going to be doing some stuff, but, um, same, I, uh, I've been working on mine and then I'm working with my nephew. Um, I got him an actual boxing bag. One of those nice, it's a pretty sturdy kind of stand up bag. And, uh, I got to get myself one, but I usually use one when I go to the gym, but I got two different size gloves too i got kind of some punching gloves it's more made for me to hit bags and everything and i got like some big 16 ounces for sparring but um yeah i gotta come over there one day we might have to hit uh pads and stuff like that man it sounds like you're getting back in the game hey i always told you if if you ever hear me start talking about how the heavyweight division is traditionally pretty weak just put a break on it and be like hey no no no, I am the wrong friend for that. I'm going to be like, yes, yeah, so when do we start? You know, hey, we can train in my house a bit. You know, You're a right. couple days You're... over your house, a couple days in my house. <laughs> You're, th- You're two wins away from a title shot. <laughs> that's, that's all it takes. That's all it takes. <laughs> Did you have any other uh, trainers that you wanted to throw out there? No, I think that's it. Like you is my new trainer. We're going to go uh, take the downriver circuit by storm. Let's do it all the way (laughs) well i want to thank everybody um of course thank you for listening it's been another great episode of fat boy mma podcast and um definitely show the trainers some love out there any trainers that you come across go to their social media follow them especially if you're into the sport you'll likely learn a lot just by following them and seeing them train some of your favorite fighters and some up-and-coming fighters that you don't even know uh, you know, don't even know right now, uh, to check us out, to check us out, um, you can go to links.fatboymma.com and you'll be able to see everything from our social media, everything like that. Uh, our social media needs to come up a lot. It is my fault. I do not post a lot. I am working on that. So I'm going to be working on getting some more stuff out there for you all on social. And another thing that, people seem to like is when I kind of tweet uh, during some of the live events. So I'm going to try and do some more of that. It's kind of difficult sometimes because I'm so into the fights. I really don't feel like tweeting during the fights, but remember when you was live tweeting through the first round of the NCAA wrestling, <laughs> some of the biggest ups- <laughs> giant, uh, giant upsets and shit. You're like, ah. well, that's enough. Let me watch. There's 36 matches going on at once. (laughs) First first wrestling event ever, and that's what we threw at you. Exactly. Yeah, and I need to go to another one of those because that was exciting. But uh, oh, but uh, mm -hmm. trainers. If you said uh, follow your trainers on social media and stuff, 
Follow mm-hmm. Tony Jeffries on TikTok. He's like an Olympic boxer. He's mm-hmm. uh, he's real good. Yeah, nice. he does like instructional boxing TikToks and uh, pretty entertaining, but they're pretty good too. Check it out, man. Go follow. Nice. You heard it from Locke. That wraps up another Fatboy MMA podcast. Thank you for listening. Come again. That wraps up another Fatboy MMA podcast. If you have a topic for us, please email us at fatboymma55 at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media by going to links.fatboymma.com. That's links.fatboymma.com. Thank you for listening. Just see